Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Maya Mufarek, an award-winning thought leader in business, entrepreneurship, angel investing, and marketing. In her last full-time in-house role at Pharmacy to You, she digitized the UK healthcare industry by bringing repeat prescription management online, and where under her leadership as CMO, Pharmacy to You grew fivefold in revenue. Today, she has her own strategic growth consultancy, Marketing Cube, where she serves ambitious founders and executive teams of startups and scale-ups. Her client list include portfolio companies from some of our best VC firms, including Balderton, Notion, MMC Ventures, and Local, Local Globe, to name a few. She's also an active angel investor and a scout on the Atomico Angel program. In today's episode, I want to delve into two areas with Maya. One is, how do you go from being an operator to an angel investor, and better still, to a scout with a reputed VC firm? The second topic I want to talk to Maya about is her work with early stage companies and how she helps them to create a sustainable go-to-market strategy and a standout brand. I'm very excited for this conversation. Welcome, Maya. Thank you for having me, Anita. Very excited to be here. Excellent. So I thought we could start off with the first part of our conversation, which is talking about your journey from being an entrepreneur to an angel investor and now a scout also. What are some of the key points you would attribute in your journey that helped you make that transition successful? I've been in tech for so many years, and I guess as an operator, as you grow through the organizations or start becoming a founder, you end up looking at the tech ecosystem from many different angles, right? As you start engaging with the board, you see their perspective and the type of questions. When you go to raise, you hear what the investors are asking. You obviously know what your day-to-day challenges are. And as you engage with other operators, get a bit of a perspective from different business models and things like that. And that's really what I realized without really making it a point in my life led me to my portfolio career today, where I am a board member, an angel investor, an advisor, or an actual operator in my fractional work. And I would always say to people like, do and seek those different perspectives, even to get to, to learn what matters to the board, what matters to an investor, talk to other operators. It really gives you a different perspective. It's very, I find it very enriching and also invite you to think differently, even in your operator role sometimes. And I think that eventually led you to one, figuring out if you might be interested in that, right? But also gives you the beginning, both connections to those industries and also some tips in how you might approach it for yourself. So really that's how the angel investment become a thing, an element of my, uh, of my portfolio career. 
if you wanted me to deep a bit deeper into my my the angel investment, I think first of all, disclaimer, right? <laughs> to state the obvious, angel investors tend to be former business operator or executives that use the proceeds of some past successes to support new ventures, right? We talk a lot about how maybe that flywheel in Europe of like really big exits getting back invested into the ecosystem is not as big yet yes. as it is in the US. And so I think there's definitely a giving back moment in that. But also, it's also just a personal investment strategy that is very high risk, right? And we have to remind people that it's potentially high reward, but we need to remember that one in 10 startups, only one in 10 startups will succeed in the long term and return meaningful rewards to their investors, right? So again, if you consider that, just be very clear on also the financial impact and be ready to really lose it all, right? For me, it really started after my pharmacy TU exit, and I was really interested in giving back. I also am really interested in early stage startups and how we fuel more of that in the ecosystem. Because the more we start early businesses, the more there's a probability of properly European born and bred unicorns. So that's how it all came together. I did a couple of checks myself. Initially, realized the hard way, the amount of DD that it requires, the time, how lonely it can be, but also just the, the paperwork and the, the legalities associated with it. And so the more I started talking to other people that angel invested, I discovered basically the existence of angel investment communities where you come together both to bring deal flow, right? Because the first thing, just like in the VC, you need deal flow. You need to know who's raising, why, et cetera, and being exposed to that. So those angel communities bring deal flow to each other. They also debate and DD those deals together. So I have a very marketing lens. I always say I invest with empathy towards the audience and the problem that they're solving. And I might not know enough about ops or something else. And so having other perspective in the room that will leverage my insights as to why I think you know, their growth and the growth strategy is, is meaningful and that they're taking the right first bets versus someone else saying, but operationally, there's all those risks or there's those concerns. So debating those. And then obviously as a group, we basically pay a minimal amount of fee for the paperwork to be handled as one. There's obviously a lot of benefits to the, to the founders themselves who are raising from an angel community as they get access to this huge amount of talent, hopefully, right? Former operators or current operators. And then they have just one line on their cap table, but they can get much more people in one go. So those are some of the things, I guess, along my angel investment journey. There's so many things that you said that I really just want to repeat so that people understand. So the first thing you said is, as an operator, really have a bigger lens in terms of what you do. Like you, a lot of times, I, I was an operator, I was a marketing leader, you're just so head heads down in the daily tasks of doing whatever you're doing that I think it took definitely a lot longer in my career, maybe when I was slightly wiser and more mature to like really step back and try to see the bigger perspective in terms of my role in the company, in that industry, in the ecosystem of other operators, other functions within my company, the board, the leadership team, and understand how all those, all those elements come together and the expectations that the investors have of the board has of the different leadership people and the team. Those are things that I never really paid an attention to in the beginning of my career. I was just like, okay, this is my job. This is what I'm doing. It was a lot later on that I started to think from all those other perspectives. And what I heard from you is if you want to make that transition, 
in your operator role, if you're thinking and have this bigger lens, it's going to help you to make that transition. So that's the first thing that I really love. And then the angel investing, it's a lot more than just having money. You have to think about the due diligence and there's so many different aspects to due diligence. What I'm hearing from you is if you do want to do angel investing, it's important to understand the operations perspective, the finance perspective, the audience perspective. And unless you have the skills or you are willing to develop those skills, maybe looking at a syndicate or an investing community is a good way to understand how to do a more holistic due diligence. Did I get that correct? Absolutely. And maybe to build on that, you might want to be doing individual check and pick each of the companies you invest in. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're very aligned with the philosophy or the thesis of a specific fund and you would want to become an LP and basically outsource them doing that for you, right? That's also that you can take. I'm a very small LP in the Antlers incubator program in their UK chapter. That's another way that kind of fits into that mix. That's a good segue into my question on if someone was thinking about angel investing, what are the different channels or ways that they can get into angel investing? So so there's a few angel communities around, right? So the one I'm part of is called Ventures Together. There's about 200 startup operators and founders that invest together. I think the while there's possibly a, a commitment over the year, the check size, the individual check side per deal, it can be as low as 1,000 pounds, right? So, so that's a very low ticket of entry per investments, but I... I I don't know the latest numbers, but they most probably would invite you to have a commitment for the year because, again, it's a numbers game. So in making one or two investments is really not the way to go. You will, mm-hmm. one can predict 100%, you know, that they'll, they'll return. So you have to get to a certain number. They usually say about 50 companies and a portfolio of about 100K plus tends to be the number circulating. This is not scientific, by the way, right. to be very, this is wisdom of the crowd that I'm hearing from that. Uh, It just mimics the whole, if one in 10 startups will not succeed or return meaningful money back, how do you diversify, right? So Venture Together is one. There's a group called Alma Angels that are uh, specialized in female founders only investment. There's C Ventures that again does a lot uh, with female founders and also in health tech and other places like that. So there's a few groups that you will find that are angel groups that you can invest with. The other aspect, obviously, is Atomico is one of them, but Ada Ventures also has one. They are VCs that are helping get more quality angels on the market by getting them to pre-invest for them. So you, will, if you align yourself with a VC and they invite you in, you will always invest a stage ahead of where they invest, right? So Ada is a seed. There's a seed investor, so you will really, you need to invest with the incubators and like barely as they get to that stage with, with founders. With Atomico, Series A investor, so you would tend to invest seed and prior to that as early as you please really at that point. So those are the different ways to start getting into that. I would really, even if just to get exposed to some of it, go and check out when is the start startup presentation day, right? Or pitch day within and our first antler and others, and just ask to sit in and just listen to the pitches, listen to what investors are asking, see who gets an investment and why. And so really you can just learn even from that uh, if you weren't exposed to that in any other ways. Uh, but that would be some of the ways I would look into it. And, and realistically also 
Another way also, there's a lot of angel academies that are coming around. So look into those, look at to joining one and really learning if you feel you haven't exposed enough. But yep. those are some of the ways I would start looking into that. That's a good way. Because I was about to say, what if you don't have the skills and you want to, you're the type that likes to learn a little bit before starting something new. The angel academies might be a good way. Okay, great. Let's talk about Atomico. You're an Atomico angel scout. How did that come about? Yeah, my, my history with Atomico goes a little while back. They were an investor in what became the pharmacy to you group. Eventually, I had helped turn around a business and help them exit one of their portfolio companies. And then with my two business partner, we carried on and created the pharmacy to you group that I was the founding CMO of. So I have known them and were in their proximity. So I guess I was part of their network and, and worked for one of their portfolio companies in the past. And so when the program got around, they did a couple of rounds. I was an angel investing at that point, was very much still heads down pharmacy to you. And I think when I went into my portfolio career and started angel investing, that's where I, they, they gave me a call saying, we have another group coming together. Would you like to join? Again, for them, it's, and that's very much like how Atomico puts it, they want to know what's coming ahead, right? What are the trends? What, what's happening? So for them, it's really interesting to have a diverse team of angel investors, most of them very much operators, startups operators, or what I call pre-VC people, as in they, they might be thinking of making the switch, but they're not completely there yet. So that we basically bring that deal flow. We show them what's going on, both just of saying, hey, we're looking at this. It doesn't mean that we're investing, but we share what we're looking at the moment or what get, getting exciting. And then as we invest um, for Atomico from a seed perspective, then they can see also what happens with those companies. And I, I would hope that biggest success is seeing some follow-on. Obviously, it's not the primary purpose of this group um, because Atomico is such a big fund. And when you're such a big fund, there's massive constraints in what you can invest because it needs to become so, so big. And so this is how it comes about. And it's all about exchanging with those other angels and learning from each other and DDing deals and going together or not onto them. But for the, the scout program specifically, in your case, looks like you had a lot of background and relationship with them. You worked with them and you were part of pharmacy to you. But in general, are these VC firms that have a scout program, what is it that they're looking for to say, hey, come and join our scout program? What do I mean, they need to see? What they need to see, yes. So interestingly, a lot of them will bring people on that have never angel invested before, right? And they will help them get on that on that journey. I know that the other program is definitely that. So it's people who are not invested at all or very early in that journey. And really what they're looking for is diverse subject matter expertise. I know other specifically like health and climate and a few other things. So they will be looking for people that are invested in, that are interested and have knowledge in those industries to go and help them DD, identify, and really get those early deals on from a scout program, not their actual fund program. So that's what it is. Atomico is obviously so big and so diversified that any really um, experience across the board in the different industries, we have people from every single type of experience and industry in, in the mix at the moment, yeah. So more the domain expertise is what they're looking for. They don't care whether you are an operator before, but they care that you have domain expertise in a specific area and so would know what is coming up and what is good and what is not, what the real problems are, et cetera. Okay, got it. And maybe to illustrate that point, when I started angel investing and when slowly my name started circulating on the fact that I am also an angel investor now, 
the femtech health tech startups would find me. I wouldn't go and find them just because I was, I was with pharmacy to you. And so they're looking for this quality insights experience. What kind of wisdoms can I share with them so that they can learn from my mistakes, really? And so that's really what comes from it. And then the Atomico and other VCs are the expert investors. And so if you wanted to learn more, wanted some more guidance, you have plenty of seasoned investors to go to and get some support from. Got it. That's really helpful. I did not know that. Okay. And one last question before we move off the investing side. When would you say don't angel invest? Don't get into angel investing. Okay. Obviously one is, do you have the money or not? But is there anything else that says if you're this type of person or if you're like this, then angel investing is probably not for you? I mean, there's this question of do you have the money, but it's also how much are you ready to see just disappear? I always say to early angel people who are getting into angel investing is say, put aside how much you're ready to see disappear. And only and basically if something comes out of it, it will be just a lovely surprise. Yeah. Right. We really need to think of it like that at the very beginning, because you need to prove to yourself that this is working and also make sure that this is part of a diverse investment portfolio and that this only represents a small part of a much more diversified way that you're investing your money. So I think that is really the, the, the essential foundation. Angel investing is, there's multiple sides to it, right? Like, you can get really deep with a bunch of businesses that you support and you can spend a lot of time with them because you're their angel investor, right? There will be a bunch of places you invested in, but you never really build that relationship. Maybe they're slightly more adjacent to your expertise and so mm -hmm. you feel you can have less to, to, to give. And so also decide what kind of angel investor you want to be. Are you okay with having a portfolio of businesses you don't really engage with and just read the investor updates? Or do you want to go quite deep? I have a variety of those. I have those that I'm heavily invested in and spend a lot of time with, and I feel like I have a lot to add. And then that works for a while, and then they're off to something where I can no longer help, and that's fine. And some others where it starts really, I invested, but I haven't been as involved with them because I'm just not the right person right now for what they need. And that, that, they may never benefit from me really in this kind of quality input. But that's really the things to consider. But I don't think there's a type for angel investment. I think it's a, it's an investment strategy. It's more the how much time you want to dedicate on top of your money with those, with those. A good angel, right? A quality angel that other people will seek to, to get on their cap table is obviously quick to respond, encouraging, actually reads the investors updates. And when there's an ask, ask they can help with, goes and does that. Those are really the things you want to, you want to be more than a check really is the way right. I look at it. Right. As much as possible, right? The, more, the bigger your portfolio, the hardest it becomes, but yeah. at least you select portfolio companies. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great advice. So Maya, let's move on to the second part of it. And I know that, like you said, you offer a lot of hands-on support and advice and help to startups and scale-ups, whether it's ones that you've invested in or whether the ones that you consult with. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do for them, startups yeah. and scale-ups? Yeah. The work I do is very much around lending the same CMO skills I, I built up over my career, but to a portfolio of different businesses that I curate myself through my fractional work. So I partner with tech founders and um, their executive teams to define and implement their business growth paths, right? And I 
geekily call myself a full stack CMO because really I look at the business holistically, right? Everything that will impact their growth. And so my work is really in anchored in customer insights, data, brand, marketing, and product really, because it's such a part of that growth engine. So that's really the support I provide to them. It's anything from defining that growth path and figuring out based on their business model and their audience, who they're trying to go after, what is the best way to start engaging with them, all the way to have you positioned yourself in the right way? Do you have messaging that is going to resonate with your audience? And really is your product matching the needs of that audience and serving that audience in the best possible way so that they really get the growth gets fueled the more they use the product, right? Yeah. If there is a work effect in their businesses. So those are the different ways I engage with them. I, I interview a lot of um, startups, every, everything from seed all the way to C and D. And I want to take the opportunity, having someone so experienced in front of me to ask you uh, the kinds of questions that come up often. And so the first one is in that very early stage when you're trying to figure out product market fit. Yeah. What would you recommend their focus be from a go-to-market perspective? Yeah. So, and, and, and that's a very important question because I think that the startup growth life cycle gets really muddled, right? And so it's really important to be very clear on what it takes to get to an MVP versus to product market fit versus channel market fit versus really that maturity and growth curve. And so that obviously it starts with product market fit. But before product market fit almost, I always ask, do you have an MVP and are you sure you have the right problem solution? So have you found a meaningful enough problem with a differentiated enough solution to say, okay, now I'm going to refine from this, right? Because you don't, you look for product market fit after you have some element of MVP, some product to show for, right? Something mm -hmm. to test with. But the very first question is to say, how big is this problem you're trying to solve? And I'm not talking about your investor deck. My time is huge. It's really how painful is that problem? And are people going to be willing to combat any inertia they might have to go and solve it, right? And the example is all, I always use is it, we, we all can have an honest read of our life and say, there's a whole bunch of stuff that is not working as well as I'd like in my life, but I'm also doing nothing. Right. 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 And so, so it needs to be a meaningful enough problem that you're solving first. Once you feel you have that and you have qualified that enough, then you work moving into product market fit. And when the first, so MVP, it's about what matters to my customers. The first question you really answer is what matters to whom? And therefore, is that big enough of a, of, of a problem? And you identify your customer base and your problem base in that way. Once you've done that, now you're looking for product market fit. And what product market fit really requires is you being able to make sure that your messaging is going to resonate. And obviously your messaging mimics your product and what you're able to do. But you need to be able about like, how do I make sure that this resonates with my audience? I feel like I have the right product for the thorny problem. Now I need to articulate and drag attention to say, oh, that's interesting. That spikes an in interest. And so again, both of those processes are heavily in customer interviews, talking to potential target audiences and really understanding what's in it for them and how they are articulating it. And so I would argue that up to this point, there's no real go-to-market strategy. It's just fast reiteration, getting enough 
traffic on your website or just guerrilla marketing audiences, no matter how you attract them, to be able to learn from them and reiterate your product, your messaging, and how it resonates with your audience. I, I always warn startups not to talk about go-to-market at that point because it's not about your go-to-market. It's a really important thing to say. You're not yet ready to go to market. You're still trying to figure out what the market is at this point. Yes. So I have a very interesting question here. And I see this with a lot of companies, especially B2B, right? They all have a product for which there's an end user. There's someone that's using the product. Mm -hmm. But then the person who is buying it is somebody different. So mm -hmm. it could be that it's people in the company that are using it, but it helps the marketing, the CMO or... Mm -hmm. People in the company are using it, but it helps the CFO or something where there's an end user and the decision maker are different. So that very early stages, when you're talking about like when you're talking about messaging and positioning or even iterating and who's this this like hair on fire type of problem for yeah. where are you where would you tell the founders to focus? Yeah. Is it the end user? Is it the decision maker? Is it a combination of both? How would you tell them to tackle messaging there? Yeah. So when you are at MVP and product market fit moments, it is about your end user, right? Because unless your end user is sticky, you can retain them. They see the value you're properly solving their problem. There's no real value anywhere else. Now it happens that for you to get more of those users, you want to do enterprise level deals, right? And when you're doing enterprise level deals, you know, have who's holding the budget, who's, who is seeing the most value out of those users in their company using you and doing it this way, et cetera. And so that's really where you're turning into go-to-market. And that's where not only you're going to need to exactly know why the users love it, because you're going to have to demonstrate also the impact of those users using it with this end commercial buyer, but then you're going to have to do also this next piece of work, which is if this is true about my end user, what is of the value to that, to that buyer? One example of me having worked on that was with ULife, life insurance. They yep. very much, they're like bringing life back into life insurance. Yes. The really differentiator is that they have this wonderfully immersive app that on top of buying and protecting you with life insurance, that, that app is all about keeping you alive as long as you can, right? As and, and good quality years. And so, Obviously, the beginning was all about how many people can I get using this app and buying life insurance in parallel, and then eventually it becomes a company-level benefit. And now you're selling to HR folks, right, to benefits teams and to, to the HR team. And so you need to turn into, okay, what's in it for them? What are the KPIs of that end audience? And for an HR Team, it's engagement, retention of the workforce, right? Satisfaction with their jobs and their packages, right? Their pay packages. And so you now are explaining how this product that helps users in this way also allows them to accomplish their corporate level KPIs, right? Right. And now we'll go to take a slack, right? Very much user-led. Start, starts with like people just using it, et cetera. And then you explain to the CEO how speed, speed of delivery or kind of alignment within the business is improved and, and many other things that matter to that CEO, for example, but possibly to an HR team too. So there's definitely in B2B, you always have to, to think of both. 
Yeah, I want to keep um, on this example of you life. It's also a company that I had interviewed. So they're a company that sells life insurance, like you said, as a benefit to a company level, but it's they've got this app that really helps with engagement and almost preventative healthcare makes you keep keeps you healthy, which is a, a great sure. idea. Um, so if you think about I don't know what how when you help them and what stages you help them at. But in like, when did you have only did you initially have only the end user messaging? And then there was a point when you added in the HR and the corporate benefit? Or did you have that from the beginning? Yeah, so I got introduced to Sammy, one of the founders of, of Life, as they raised their Series A. And so at that point, when I came in and he was looking to bolster his marketing team, and really the situation was that if you go onto their website, it was all about their app and all about user messaging. Because they were trying to get more users onto the app to validate their product and upsell to, you, to, to life insurance, things like that. At that point in time, though, with their Series A, it was all they had from an element of product market fit and they had some quality B2B deals on, under their wing, but they needed to now accelerate and it was all about growth and go to market at that point. And that's really the point in time where I took everything they know to be true about their end user and the impact of their app and then packaged that into a B2B proposition and turned their website and their messaging on, into that B2B business that had the paid, you know, their app and the benefit to the end user. But really the website was all about selling to that so the 80% use case was the B2B buyer. Yes. And then you spoke about their end user from exactly. their point of view. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But you agree that what they did up to Series A, having all the messaging focused on the end user was the right call? Yes. And then they basically okay. were doing all their sales calls with outbound and the sales deck and weren't expecting their website to be an influx of the does be to be buyer. But the more you scale, the more you want some inbound. And so you want to make sure that your shop floor, your website speaks to that audience. So absolutely, no. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that approach. And clearly okay. they went on. To do very well. So I think to it's do very it's, well. Yeah. It's a good case study. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. And Maya, the other question that I always see founders struggle with is this question of performance marketing versus brand, right? Like, Favorite question. <laughs> you get to like first time founders and they are hell bent on performance marketing because they understand that I put in a dollar, what do I get out? And this idea of brand marketing and social and all these things which can't be exactly tracked are very hard for them. And it, it makes sense. They have limited resources and they really need to conserve and make sure that where they're putting in their focus helps them to achieve their goals. But I'm curious from your experience advising so many companies, what would you recommend as a strategy in terms of performance and brand? And when does it maybe switch or weigh differently? So almost building on our startup growth life cycle that we just covered in the previous in, in the previous question. So we got to product market fit. The next stage is channel market fit. But they always say channels come last. And the challenge with the brand versus performance also comes when they don't have product market fit yet. But they're like, I need to test more channels. I need to test more channels. I'm like, no, you don't. You just need enough traffic to confirm product market fit, right? And enough quality, high intention traffic, right? Spending more time testing more channels is not the way. So there's like also that aspect of performance mm -hmm. we need to understand. Channels come last is really uh, my message to them. 
to your core question around brand versus performance, both are obviously important. And both cannot be done well unless you have quality understanding of your audience and their purchasing journey. And what triggers them to passively look or triggers them to then actively look, but also really understanding I'm a big proponent of jobs to be done as a model. There's forces at play that will push them towards your product, right? What problems, what are the desired outcomes? What problems are they trying to solve? What in your product might be helpful? But there'll be also what I call those negative forces at play, which will be just inertia. Mm. I can't prioritize it. I don't nothing about fixing it. Or just natural concerns. Will it work? Does that fit my other, the other ways I'm working? Does that suit my use case? Does that suit my industry, my stage? And a whole bunch of things that you need to alleviate their concerns as part of that process. And once you understand that, you also, and you understand the purchasing journey, not only you know what message to serve when, but you also know where to find them. And the challenge with going heavy on performance, aka paid marketing, right? Is that if you, it just sounds like, oh, this is the low-hanging fruit. They're here. They're already searching for it. That's great. But you do nothing of the rest. You're forever stuck at this low-hanging fruit, quote-unquote, that is really expensive, high-intent traffic. A lot of people are bidding against you on it, and you have no understanding where they are. I was talking to a marketplace recently, and their audience are really parents, right? And the education of their children. I'm saying, yes, performance is great, but where are those moms and dads? They are, they're, they're doing pickups and drop-offs. They're standing in cold weather on those, the sport pitch, right? Waiting for the child to finish football, whatever other activities. And guess what? That's most probably the one minute they're somewhat idle during the day and maybe are actually literally looking and thinking about their children, thinking, oh, we have math to do, or they're still not as great as we would love them to do at this or that. And if it's about the education of their children, that's the moment you want to engage with them, right? Yes, maybe they're searching too. But if you can be present in all of that, and then the flywheel that comes from this, right? Other parents selling up parents and things like that. And so you really need to be able to act on all of those. At pharmacy, to you, that core moment for us was GP farm, GP surgeries. A lot of people, and that's a few years back, when online repeat prescription didn't have the adoption it has now that really pharmacy to use per head, they would be on the phone to their GP trying to get an appointment. They then finally get to the GP, wait because the GP is late and all that to spend about three seconds in the room, get their repeat and, and get out. Yep. We quickly realized that actually GPs are sell media space on their walls. And that's the core trigger moment where that person has already spent so much time getting disappointed. Now I'm wasting more time being here. I don't want to be here. I just want to repeat. There's no value for my GP right now. Yeah. And literally serving them with the message, you don't need to be here. Sign up for this and you never have to do this again. So you want to find those trigger moments. I love that. Such a great example, Maya. Love it. Okay, so if I had to summarize what you said is in terms of the performance marketing and brand and knowing what to invest, you really need to understand the customer journey and what are those trigger points and where do you need to be there? And then you can decide whether you need to be there from a performance marketing perspective or from a brand perspective or both. Was that, is that correct? Absolutely. And and really my warning to founders is if you're pushing your team to do more performance or start with performance and invest in nothing else, 
you are really getting yourself hooked on something mm. that is sustainable. So yeah. I get it. Immediate response, immediate impact might be from a bit of pain. But if that's the only thing you're going to focus on, you are going to get yourself in trouble. And obviously, back in the days where funding was almost like very heavily available, it was not profitability first. Maybe that was sustainable for a while and you had time to readjust. But in the current climate, it's not. So many businesses are trying to be sustainable first, right? Profitable from the get-go. And you can't really do that with paid only. You really need to invest in the rest. Understanding your audience, understanding their desired outcome, and find them where they are on that journey. And sometimes it's offline and not online. Yeah. It might be online. But again, for pharmacy, to you as an example, we did a lot with charitable foundations or just the kind of the asthma charity, the heart health charity, et cetera, because a lot of their audiences are on repeat prescriptions and it's the right place to engage with them. And yes, maybe some of it was just value exchange. Some of them were paid uh, opportunities, but they will never be costing you the amount that's paid and SEM cost you. Yeah. And anyway, paid and SEM are really trying to capture people that are already looking yes. for something, right? It's not necessarily targeting those people that may not be looking for it, but that could be a good fit for your solution. I don't even know that you're an option, right? Yeah. I'm, I might not be considering that as something yeah. that's suitable for me. Yeah. Because there's inertia. People are happy with, they have the pain, but they don't feel like they need to do anything. And also for many startups, we need to remember that they're building something very new that no one heard about. I can tell you when I started with pharmacy to you, there was no search volume for online repeat prescription. It wasn't a thing, right? Yeah. We had to show that there's a better way than the way they're doing it now, build that credibility, et cetera. And that was not with paid. We were doing a lot outside of digital marketing, let's say, to what I used to call like generate the interest. And then we would collect that interest from our digital channels as much as possible, our owned one, but then a bit of paid too. I think if there's anything to take away from the second part, it's really understand your customer and their journey. Like Absolutely. really understand where they are, what they're doing. And that's the only way that you can know how to experiment and test, whether it's channels, whether it's messaging, whether it's triggers, you really need to understand your customer. Okay, great. Is there, before we finish the last part of our formal part of the podcast, is there anything else that you see as common mistakes founders make in those early stages when it comes to the work yeah. you do with them? Yeah, we've covered some of them, but not truly knowing their target audience, right? Their context, truly what they're trying to, to accomplish, what kind of concerns or anxieties they might have about that, really essential. Too many of them are trying to be clever with their messaging, right? And so they're under-maximizing comprehension in their copy. And I'm like, this is not the time to be smart. Just being yeah. understood is the only thing we're trying to do now, right? We're not at Nike level, just yeah. do it. And many will argue what just do it really means. And there's like books written about that. You're often building something new and you need to explain what it is and why would someone consider it, but also alleviate all the concerns they might have about trying this new thing. I would say also being unclear about their positioning. And positioning is really a strategic exercise that defines where your product and service fits in the marketplace and in the customer's lives and minds, right? And that is really important. And if you can't articulate that very clearly, it becomes very difficult. But you need to be able to explain how you are distinguished from the alternatives. And I do say alternatives, not competition, because your alternative is doing nothing. Right. Having a solution together. It's not always your direct competition, and you really need to be conscious of that. And the positioning would be after you get product market fit, right? 
with market set, you start understanding better your customer yeah. and the context in which you fit and the use cases where you really excel at. And that's how you start positioning. You solidify that knowledge into a Got position. It. Yes. And, and the other thing I tend to remind people that positioning is not defining your brand purpose and your brand statement. Those are two very different things. Positioning is really about now you can do what, unlike what type of statements, right? right. Your, your brand purpose is more about we exist because type of statements, right? And, and those are very different. The brand statement is all about the positive difference you're trying to make in the world, right? So much more pragmatic and anchored into the benefit statements of your audience is really what you're trying to do with your positioning. What really breaks my heart every time I see that in early stage startups, it's really this lack of cross-functional alignment. They already operate in silos, marketing here, product here, sales there. And I'm like, you're not an enterprise, right? Like, <laughs> where are your must-win battles and where are your cross-functional plans to deliver to those battles? Yes, there is value for marketing to sit together with marketing and brainstorming together and stuff like that, but they can't deliver meaningfully to a business unless it's a cross-functional uh, initiative, right? Because product has a role to play, sales has a role to play, ops, many yeah. other things. They're not doing that deliberately, right? It's just that we think of businesses as different departments, et cetera, yeah. and it really doesn't work for startups. And so the way yeah. I phrase it for them is usually to say, what are your must-win battles? As a business, what are your must-win battles, right? Is it fixing your tech and rebuilding your tech because it's not scalable? Is it around finding product market fit? Is it about trying to identify one additional vertical you're going to go after? Many different things, right? That they might, or actually build a next reiteration of your product with more innovation into it. And so define those. And then let's start listing every single department that's going to contribute to that. I love that. Yeah, just a simple spreadsheet. And how? Yeah. And cross-functionally, they're all here to deliver to this one single must-win battle. Creates way better alignment. Doesn't create the like, oh, but, you know, marketing is not doing this or products is not doing yeah. this. You're all here assigned to doing this. It just ends any of those conversations, really. And so I think that is really my, like, when I see that and I spend a lot of time helping solve for it, really. That's a way of frame to it. And, and it's usually really well received. They just don't know how to get there. And that's where a lot of great chief of staff and CEOs and, and myself come in. We see I come more from a growth perspective because again, it's right. growth. It's, not, it's about marketing or product or sales. It's about growth, but it's true in tech and many other aspects of your business. I love that. I think we're going to use the last few minutes. I have this rapid round that I like to ask. And it usually starts with, is there a book that you would recommend? Do you have a favorite book? It could be fiction or nonfiction that influenced you or that you want to share. Yeah. In my 20s, and I have a very multicultural background, I think I was feeling like the typical I don't belong anywhere moment. And in my 20s, I came across a book by Amin Malouf, who's a Lebanese-French writer who made the French Academy. And he wrote a book, translated into English, it's called In the Name of Identity. And it really covers many identity wars in the world, really. And obviously, Lebanon has its fair share. And obviously, the world right now is going through multiple as well. And really, it really, the premise of the book really helped me come together with my different identities. And one of the things that it says is like, 
the value of having that exposure to so many cultures and languages and countries, and no matter if you don't have it personally in your personal background, just through your life and seeking them, gives you the ability to connect and to understand so many more people in this world. And that's a superpower. And that really made me feel so much better in my 20s. And I still very much value that and, and try to pass it on to my own daughter, who, again, is born into a multi multinational family, but again, cultivating that. And the book ends up in this wonderful note. And the book is dated from 2012, I think. And so obviously with what's going on in the world today, which is really uh, heartbreaking for all parties, you, the end of the book is, is, he says, I wish that my legacy with this book is that my grandchildren will pick it up on their parents' shelves and say, what was he on about? Oh. I love that. And so that's one that will forever be my, my favorite book. I have many yeah. other joy, but I think this one was really foundational to my own identity, but I think to the world yeah. at large. I read uh, Amin Malouf's um, Samarkand and Leo the African, but I've not read this one. So I'm going to oh, look I it up. I recommend, yes. Okay. Okay. Lovely. Okay. And uh, what's your favorite European city? Lisbon. Lisbon. Okay. The moment, yeah. The burgeoning tech community doesn't uh, makes it even more attractive. But my family's kind of love relationship with Portugal started about twenty years ago when we started going to the south of Portugal in the summer, and my dad ended up investing there. And so then it was great to see also Lisbon become uh, of interest from a tech perspective for me. And so just back from the web summit, actually, the whole weekend Lisbon. So yeah, oh, yeah, I hear Lisbon from a lot of entrepreneurs. So I should make a post about it. Lisbon and then Berlin. Those are the two yep. that I hear the most about from yes. entrepreneurs. I okay. definitely have more things with Lisbon than Berlin, but yeah. <laughs> Do you have a productivity tip or productivity hack? Something yeah, that keeps I, you productive? Yeah, I've posted about that in the past and had a lot. It, it really did very well. And I realized it resonated with a lot of people. I never thought it was such a huge productivity tip, but I color code my calendar to make sure I'm allocating my week in the right way because obviously I'm a, because I'm running a portfolio career, I need to be balancing out my different clients, time for my angel investing, working on my own future and things like that. But most specifically, I also color coded after the fact and look at what drained me and what energized me. Hmm. So there's, it goes red into if some just stay not color coded because it's yeah, just yeah. neutral, right? but some is drained and energized. And then I kind of reassess and saying, did that drain me because I was in a meeting I shouldn't have been in? Or did that drain me because I took on a project that I don't have that much affinity with and I should really extract myself mm -hmm. and reflect on who would be best placed? And energized me sometimes, you don't always think about, oh, actually, I really enjoyed this part or I really enjoyed doing this. How could I do more of it? Right. And that's really my, my keeping happy productivity tip, I guess. Yeah, I love it. Do you do that on a weekly basis? Yeah, so I do it on a weekly basis, like on the weekend or the Friday before, just to make sure my week is planned in the right way. And so if I need mm. to reschedule or something like that, or reorganize or reassess. Mm -hmm. And then after the fact, I look back and color code for was And especially on the week where you feel so bitten down by Friday yeah. night. Definitely you do that thing of what has drained. Is it just a sheer amount of stuff? Is it because it was badly organized? Or is there places I just, that really takes it out of me and it's not, there's things in life you can't always change, but there's many that you can. I love that, Maya. I'm going to try that this week and yeah. see how that works out. And yeah. then my last question is, do you have a quote, a favorite quote that you want to share? Uh, it's by Franklin Roosevelt. And he says, the only limit to our realization of tomorrow uh, will be our doubts of today. 
So I'll say that again, the only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. And it's really just invite, it reminds us that our doubts are really the only true obstacle to path to progress. And some people refer to it as fear. I think it's a bit too strong of a word, but we all have those doubts and little anxieties. Oh, can I do this? Could I reach out to this person? Could I try X, Y, Z? And, uh, and really the worst thing that can happen is that they'll say no or not reply. But if you don't ask, you won't get. And that's something I know that my father has always told us as well. Don't ask, don't get. And, yeah. and I think like, obviously you need to get it a bit more matured nowadays into the, the reality of what it is to building a business, starting a business, et cetera. I was having conversation with a lot of founders at the web summit and some people who are not founders yet, but might could yeah. become maybe some get the damn good ones. And, and a lot really the narrative that comes back is I need to build up the courage. Yeah. To start. But it's back to their own doubts, right? Yeah. We'll talk about imposter syndrome and all of those. Again, I'm not a big fan of those terms. I think if you just catch your own doubts. Yeah. And unlock those, you'll be able to do way more. Very inspiring, Maya. I think Thank that's you. a great place to end. Thank you so much for being on this podcast with me today. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Me too, Anita. Thank you so much and keep up the great work. Love listening to it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and the ladies and the view of the show's Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.